0: You're listening to Truth Hurts Podcast, presented by myself, Mark Shepard, and special guests. Hello and welcome to this episode of Truth Hurts Podcast. My name is Mark Shepard, your host, and this episode is going to be discussing equality. Today I'm joined by Sally, the CEO of Split the Difference, CIC, and Arpu, who is an an aspiring human rights lawyer and also a director of Split the Difference, CIC. We will be having an open discussion today on what equality looks like in this day and age and if it really exists. But before we kick into that, I just want to discuss a little bit more about Split the Difference and the campaigns and things that they've been doing around equality. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Sally, to give us a little bit more insight about Split the Difference.
1: Okay, hi Mark, and thank you for inviting us. I know I'm excited about being here, and I know Apua has feeling the same. She's uh, she can't wait to talk about equality and and human rights and all the work that she's doing. So, so Split the Difference is an organisation that was born out of six years now research, continual research. We're always looking at facts and figures and new statistics and new evidence around equality and human rights and. It was born from a domestic abuse service that was um, it was paid for by the South Wales Police and Crime Commissioner. And it took me on a journey of research that was one year in the UK and then it's never stopped all over the world. I looked at over 15 countries and from that we built up uh, 13 areas of focus that are more or less based around um maslow's hierarchy of needs i think lots of people know that now where is the basic needs of somebody when they need to thrive um so things like housing family court criminal court normal you know equality human rights the list is on our website if you want to read and the idea of what we do is to establish where the need is for men and boys and where the need is for women and girls and look at where the comparisons are and how we can fill the gaps for men and boys and we're very proactive in that.
0: So let's break it down. So why why in particular men and boys because a lot of people are going to say but, but why not women? Why have you chosen that path of men and boys?
1: The research that I initially did was I I've run services I've worked always worked in frontline people facing services forever um but for the last 20 years I've either been designing them um creating them running them you know mentoring organisations that do that and when we created the whole family domestic abuse service because of my history and my training i knew that that service couldn't be a gendered service because if it did it wasn't actually working with the reality of families lives and from that i went into a level of research that i'd never looked at before and when you see how 21 acts of law in the uk are filtered from things like the istanbul convention which is solely focused on the the needs of women and girls And how that feeds down into frontline services and you look at stats and evidence around you know what do women and and girls need and what do men and boys need the gap is so much of a void in there right right there in the middle there's nothing you know um we've got services not just in the uk but all over the world that focus on women and girls needs we've got policies we've got you know, funding, we've got fiscal management country wise, local authority wise, all over the world that focus on women and girls. That's not the same for men and boys. But we know there's a need there. And in a lot of cases, the need is higher. So it doesn't make any sense. And for me, for us as an organization, we focus on what is the need. It's not what gender is experiencing the need. We say, okay, so what's the need? So one of the needs is domestic abuse. How many people are experiencing domestic abuse? You know, what is actually going on in those family units? And yes, you need to understand where the greater majority is. But you also need to know that you've got to give parity in how you deliver those services. And this simply isn't for men. You know, it's not my voice. It's not, you know, it's not my opinion. This is stats and evidence. And I, but think this is, is, but this,
0: I agree with you with that mm-hmm. in terms of <clears throat> most of the so if you look at the adverts, if you look at TV adverts, mm-hmm. okay, and we look at social media adverts, I would say 90% of them will, are mm-hmm. aimed at women. Mm-hmm. So the, my, my question is, why? Why is it solely aimed at women? Because we know it happens to both genders. Yes. But why is it solely aimed at women?
1: We've got a narrative. I mean, that's a, that's a huge question, and I'll just give you a small overview. The Istanbul Convention is a powerhouse. It's situated within the UN. the UN. The UN Women was created in 2010, and the, the Istanbul Convention was created in 2011. Those two things became a power source for addressing the agendas and needs of women. Now, we don't say you can't do that. We say that is absolutely needed, 100%. But what it did, because there's no UN men and there's no version of the Istanbul Convention that actually identifies men's needs, there's a massive worldwide network and pathways for women into services. Not only that, if you add on to that, this kind of societal narrative that says women are victims of of everything and anything... Um, and men are generally perpetrators. It's a very generalistic view. But unfortunately, the last year of my research was was done um, in the societal narrative, not just here, but in the countries I've looked at. So in terms of like news, you know, reality TV, music, um, just the, the normal shows, EastEnders, you know, um, these kinds of things. For For 12 months, I explored the narrative within society. How do society view women and how do they view men? boys and and there is definitely a footprint i mean martin Seeger and john barry um with another writer created a a psychological theory base called gamma bias and that's very much reflected in in how our media and how our world talks about women and girls and how it talks about men and boys and because of the powerhouse of the un women and the powerhouse of of the Istanbul Convention, you couple that into any country, I mean, even developing countries, and you've got a huge voice for women and girls, but you have no voice for men and boys. So this, this has created an environment, put all that together like a recipe in this big, huge pot, and you've got an environment where the only needs of society are women and girls. Men and boys don't have a need.
0: But this is the but this is the funny thing because I could, I wanted to, to talk about sort of my own experiences with this mm-hmm. uh, this this inequality because as a man I feel and this is me talking blunt and, 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 and forthright that I'm a perpetrator, okay? And mm-hmm. I'm being honest about it. I feel that every day I wake up, I'm construed as a perpetrator.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: So when people go, but what do you mean by that, Mark? Well, let's, let's look at it. Let's look at the facts, okay? So if you, if you look at the adverts and stuff that are, are out there, okay, they're always talking about how we can make women feel safe, okay? How can we make women feel safe? But the narrative that follows that is that before we even we, – we can tackle that topic, we've put all men in the category of perpetrators, mm-hmm. every single man. Which is untrue because not every single man out there is a perpetrator so what we need to be able to do is define the two okay and say actually there are also female perpetrators as well so it's it's the language that's being used i think it needs to be adapted to more of an equal playing field Mm -hmm. as opposed to just saying well only men are perpetrators and only men commit domestic violence. Only women need safe havens. You know, we need it's, it's, that, it's that narrative that's being pushed creates this inequality. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, for me, for instance, when I walk down the street, there's there's loads of adverts saying, you know, if a woman's in front of you, you as the man should cross the road or hang back. Because if, if you're a man and you're doing all these things behind a woman, surely she's going to be nervous. She's going to be like, "What was this guy doing? Like he's crossing the road. He's crossing back. He's, he's hanging back. What is he doing? Because he, you're going to actually make the woman even more nervous. So she's thinking, hold on, I'm just walking down the street. This guy is clearly just walking down the street, but now he's seen me and he's acting suspiciously. And he's starting to, to do things which are making the woman who's walking down the road more nervous. And the man's nervous because he's being told that he's a perpetrator. So he doesn't know what to do in this situation. So he's getting confused. He's like, Well, I don't know here. I, I just want to walk down the road. I'm going home or I'm going to work. But there's a woman in front of me walking down the street, and now I feel awkward and she feels awkward. The problem that we have, as I said, is it's the narrative that gets portrayed out there. Mm-hmm. That men are all men are dangerous. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's simply not true. Okay. There are, I know, some really great fathers and men out there that have never committed any form of criminality or violence or anything like that, but, but, they, but they're, not, they're not promoted. These fathers, these men are not promoted. Mm-hmm. It's only the negative that seems to be promoted. And and, and and the worst platform for this kind of negativity, I would suggest, is, is Twitter. Mm-hmm. There are some really scary and dangerous people on Twitter that push a, a narrative that basically all men should basically be locked up and not allowed out of their houses. And that is really, really damaging. And it's not damaging just for men, but it's, it's also damaging for the boys. Because as they grow up, they're not sure what they should be doing. They're not being guided or given the, 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 the equality to live their lives alongside women. They're being told that, you know, you're substandard, you're a predator, mm. you're evil, you're, you know, you should be basically locked away. Mm. And that's confusing. So, so how, how can we, how can we change that narrative? How can we bring that, that, that gender equality back into the system?
1: There's, there's a voice um, that's in the world. It's a premise, it's a belief system, like you've just, you've just described, that there is a victim and there's a perpetrator that narrative is so embedded that the belief system is bigger than any kind of facts, figures, stats, and it runs like a, like a train that's untethered, you know, it's, it's crazy. And I, and I agree with you, but, and I know that the instinctive thing to say would be that you need to control the voice of the person that's calling men perpetrators. And, you know, I'm, one of the ministers had said that she believed that a curfew should be put in place post six o'clock for, for men through COVID. I mean, the most craziest things that women seem to allow themselves to say um, and, and leaders at that, you know, it's crazy. And But in any communication, there is a sender and a receiver and both sides have an opportunity to to address that communication when it's happening. And one of the things that I've always said to men, yes, I know you're in an awful position right now, but actually staying silent or the the opposite going to the other end of the pole and coming out shouting and screaming doesn't neither of those work. What you need is to formulate a narrative in yourself that respects yourself, understands that your voice matters, and then formulate that in these communications. so the subtlety um about you know anybody that turns around and says, "You know oh men are this or men are that we I, we encourage men to say, well actually." you know, I, I want to talk to you about that a minute. Actually, I'm a guy and, and I've been in that situation or I've experienced that. And while I was experiencing that, these were my thoughts and these were my feelings. And you, you make it a two minute thing. And then I keep saying it's a drop the mic moment. You say, okay, great. So, and you you just step away. You don't get engaged with it. You don't argue the fact with it. You simply say, this is who I am. This was what I was thinking and feeling at the time. And you leave that person with that thought because, Men can't bash women up for having that opinion when they're not willing to say, actually, you're wrong. And women, I mean, our poor and I, we get very passionate about the way we feel about women, particularly professional women. Twitter, you've mentioned, is one of the it can be one of the most toxic environments you can step into. And Twitter is known to be the place where professionals are happy to sit organizations have twitter accounts individual professions that work for those organizations have twitter accounts and it seems to be the place where the hub of what's going in society from right from government down to you know the the guy who delivers your coal on on a saturday morning and everybody seems to be able to have an opinion on that there's no accountability within businesses within you know i mean the government how they can allow some of the the media t- to be voiced on there that is so derogatory against men and boys without holding these employees to account is beyond me we've you know we're a partner for gender parity u k What gender parity does is it it's a think tank and it takes guidance policy it takes newspaper articles that have been published unfairly and not factual, and it actually writes letters and it's had great successes most recently. Um, it's influenced legislation and it's continued to influence the narrative. Uh, one of our founder members is is also a founder member of the APPG for Men and Boys. That All that group does is get together once a week. It looks at an agenda. It follows the agenda. It uses its voice. And I'm the only woman in there. Um, it uses its voice. It it puts its its voice on a piece of paper and it sends it out into the world. And that's all it does, and once it's done, it's done. if there's a following communication, they maintain that communication, but all they're doing is is actually having a voice and using it in a very factual in you know they are influenced by research and knowledge and understanding things that would stand up to scrutiny and i think in in your in your representation of you know how it feels to be a man it for me and our poo, it breaks our heart, we don't like it we find the whole thing abhorrent. Um, we really do. We don't like female leaders who think that they can just talk for women when in actual fact, by their very nature, they are meant to be serving society, which is 50-50. But we need men like you, Mark, to say, well, actually, when I'm walking down the road, that's how I felt. And it made me so, so uncomfortable that I I held right back or across the road and sped up and walked past her because that's what men have told me. Um, but you need, you need to say that and you need to say it in a way that's not confrontational that's just like actually you're wrong you, you know you're wrong and this is how it is for us so
0: but this is but this is what my plan was because when i started my whole journey before i started podcasting and everything my journey was trying to bring equality to family courts and i found that was probably the, the biggest environment for me that was unequal unequal and there was no equality whatsoever in the family court system um, so that's where my journey started but I, as over the years I realized look it's not only men that are falling short in in in, in family court women are also forget, finding themselves in the same struggles um, so I started going more of a gender neutral direction myself okay but mm-hmm. there's still but there's still a heavy one-sided narrative against men. Now, we have, as men, tried to um, raise our concerns about that. And what tends to happen is we get shut down. Mm -hmm. And we get shut down from everyone. We get shut down from um, MPs, our, our, our parliament, anyone that's got influential power or can actually do something with regard to legislation, um, if you go in as just a man, they will basically tell you it's not going to work. OK, mm. so we have been told over the years that if we want any change in legislation, we want any change in society, we must have a woman do it for us. That's what we've been told.
1: Well, I I would disagree with that. And just because somebody communicates something to you doesn't mean it's Right. And I think one of the things about the environment we're working in currently is there are lots of people who are actually formulating based on academia, research, based on knowledge, and they're actually joining different groups. Their groups are working together. I mean, having delivered services for for over 20 years and being parts of, you know, from the formulation of legislation down into service delivery, the one thing I know about that is that the government it's easy for the government and those in leadership to ignore single voices however it's not easy for them to to ignore voices that are being created in a um in a managed structured joined up way and i know some of the work that you're doing is about bringing people together and organisations together for us we are, are constantly reaching out to to because i mean unfortunately there's no funding for for organisations to support men and boys. So the ones that are in existence tend to be very ground level, very organic. They are people, often academics, often family members who are actually getting together. um, And just on a Friday night, Monday night, you know, the men's shed type environment are trying to support men and boys. So they're very we are joining with them. We've got a, a map at the moment of over three hundred organisations across the UK and trying to grow that. And I know that you're you're attempting to do a mapping exercise. Silencing doesn't work and and with the, with the greatest challenge to you, Mark, just because somebody tells you no doesn't mean if you know it's right that you have a voice and you do because of equality and human rights, then you actually or you or other men need to think, okay, where can I go to join that voice up? because it's the only option you've got they disallow the individual guy you know they don't they cannot they don't like it when organized groups approach them and say you need to listen
0: that i agree with 100 um i'm just gonna pass it over to Arpu now
2: hi mark hi sally thank hi. you for being me on this podcast so I've been listening to all that uh, Sally has shared about Split and also your concerns, Mark, especially when it comes to silencing of voices by uh, a lot of uh, uh, MPs and uh, the general public. It's um, it's something which, you know, uh, I, I really don't appreciate. And as your podcast name suggests, Truth Hurt, hurts podcast. I would just like to uh, reflect on the title first before I say anything on equality and uh, the discrimination faced by men and boys uh, in terms of um, availing services or being treated as equal uh, uh, you know citizens of this country and elsewhere in the world too. So truth hurts uh, but truth uh, also, brings us a reflection of how we should live and what is the right way of living. And it also enlightens us. And a good thing about truth is that we don't have to remember the lies that we say because truth remains truth forever. So on this note, I uh, I would just like to make a mention of this recent Twitter hashtag which has been trending since last few days it's a uh, hashtag not just another there is an MP her name is Anna McMorrin she has actually expressed her unconditional support to expose the uh, the you know suicides uh, taking place amongst women due to domestic violence and uh, she wants to Uh, carry on a mapping exercise which, uh, you know, exposes this hidden homicide um, and how the toll of male violence affects women. There is a lot of, uh, you know, debate and discussion around this on Twitter. I woke up to certain tweets uh, today morning which really, really enraged me so much because um, when you look at it from legal perspective, since I practice um, law. So I feel it very difficult to digest when I have to uh, accept that you know there is this half of the world which consists of women, they have uh, legal support, they have victim support services, they have social sympathy, they have societal empathy as well. and all the narratives put forth from United Nations, from uh, all regional uh, bodies, From any part of the globe, they all try to uh, put forth a narrative where they just want to ensure that all men and boys also contribute towards equality of women. Forgetting that it is about empowering each other and it's, it's not uh something that only one gender needs to be taken into consideration as victims and other gender becomes uh, a prep becomes or be labeled as a prep traitor. That's what is happening. So now all the things that split is trying to do as a as a uh, uh, as a community interest company, what we are trying to uh, bring, Uh, to mainstream public narrative is a campaign through a suicide prevention uh, uh, awareness raising campaign that Split has uh, decided to undertake last year. Last year, September, we launched this campaign. So the speciality of this campaign is that it is focusing on the suicide rates amongst men and boys. Which is also the case when it comes to the domestic violence, especially intimate partner violence. There is a lot of statistical data available in England and in United States, which show that a lot of men commit suicide because of uh, IPV which is intimate partner violence and they are victims of domestic violence and domestic abuse but since our society or our legal services do not support men and they are always looked at as perpetrators and never as victims so hence this high suicide rate and no consideration under law to prevent this from happening so split has taken it on it uh, that we will raise uh, you know funds to fund this campaign so that we bring uh, legal changes, we bring legislative uh, changes and also create awareness by telling men that we have their back. So this is first. The second project which Split has initiated deals with Uh, legal intervention because we are trying to work in the runs of law and not just uh, talk or uh, you know campaign around something without facts so we support everything that we do with legal evidence so the second project is uh, relating to child maintenance services there has been an exercise conducted by Split over last two and a half months where we received lots and lots of stories from people where it was uh, shared that the child maintenance services have actually violated the human rights of non-resident parents, um, uh, which means the parents who do not live with their children due to matrimonial disputes and uh, custodial battles between the partners so those non-resident parents have been facing discrimination at the hands of uh, child maintenance services or formerly as it was called child uh, support agency which has actually inflated and on record there is a massive evidence on the national audit office website and also on um, social media blogs and posts where people express their uh, distress and suicidal tendencies because they are being forced to pay the money which they do not owe towards child maintenance so we are trying to build up a case um, in the form of a you know judicial review and also exploring our options to file a class action suit uh, through split the difference uh, in court of appeal so that we can challenge uh, the violations and the human rights breaches uh, done by the child maintenance services and third and the most you know, uh, uh, or let me say strongest uh, challenge that Sally-Ann Varys, who is uh, the the director uh, and the owner of this Split the Difference, it's her brainchild that she thought that As we have United Nations Women's Office to decide and dictate the policies of equality, empowerment and services and choices for all women in the whole world. On those lines or on similar lines, why cannot we put up a challenge to the United Nations to come up with the UN men? So that the other half of the world, if it is actually to be believed that the world consists of men and women and it's half and half. So just to bring the other half on equal plank, we can also have a United Nations men's office so that there are policies, there are services and there is law that safeguards and protects the rights of men as well just like it does for women and girls. So we want the same for men and boys. So these are three uh, projects, the suicide prevention campaign, which is an awareness and advocacy campaign focusing on men and boys. We do not want women to commit suicide either, but our focus remains on men and boys. The second is the child maintenance services, where our focus is the violation conducted by the child maintenance services where men and women are welcome to come up with their stories to us so that they become part of the case that we want to uh, you know file in code of appeal but it is more focused on men and boys again because there are lots and lots of fathers who are non-resident parents then there are mothers or the stories that we have received are from non-resident parents who are fathers. So again, the focus is on men. And then the third UN men, like I explained, it's about uh, having, you know, uh, a UN men internationally that governs 192 countries' human rights framework globally. So this is our goal. Over the next three years, we are focused on achieving these three targets. And uh, last but not the least, there is a a massive international piece of uh, legislation, which is called the Istanbul Convention. Um, in layman terms, or popularly, it is called this. But it is a prevent. It is a it is a legal instrument that protects and safeguards the rights of women who have suffered from domestic violence. The legislation that came into uh, function last year, April two thousand and twenty-one, in the United Kingdom has its roots in Istanbul Convention, which means that the domestic abuse or Domestic Violence Amendment Act 2021, which came into force last year, has all its bearings from Istanbul Convention, which means that it is solely aimed at protecting and safeguarding the interests of women and girls. That is why we see this strong narrative because we are, as a country, the the UK, it has not ratified Istanbul Convention. This is a pan-European convention which has been ratified by 11 countries when it was established in 2011. Turkey being the latest country in 2021 September that has withdrawn from this convention on the Uh, grounds that this convention is actually changing the family law the domestic law and breaking down marriages and families in their country so the right-wing political uh, uh, arena does not accept the radical feministic dialogues being presented through Istanbul convention which when ratified uh, by such countries will become Uh, an obligation on their part to have law based on that convention in their domestic legislations which is the case with United Kingdom. It is actually trying to fulfill its obligation of accession because UK has acceded to it but has not ratified this convention till date. So once we see all these legislations, uh, domestic abuse legislation, family court legislation, the, the laws governing child welfare in this country, whether it is Child Support Act, whether it is uh, you know, the, the matrimonial disputes uh, legislation, once all these things become in sync with the Istanbul Convention, then and only then, England shall get... Uh, to a place where it ratifies this treaty and then continues to fulfill those international obligations uh, which are part of uh, Istanbul Convention. So this is actually the starting point of uh, everything, which is Istanbul Convention. That is why we see so many policies which favor only and only women alone. And hence, you know, it is... It is bringing a divisive dialogue in society where men's voices are silenced and it's all the women who make noise. But we as balanced women think that law needs to treat all its citizens equally and that is why Split the Difference is working towards ensuring that we crack open Istanbul Convention, take this challenge to United Nations and bring a legislative reform which makes all women and men stand at an equal platform so far their choices of life and life chances are concerned that's all about my work
1: with split at the moment can i just say that um one of the things because because arpu and i have have lived the istanbul convention me for six years arpu for about a year now um when arpu um joined us one of the things she said to me is um, we need equality. I said, yeah, okay. And then she, um, that's what we do. And then she said, okay, so where do I start? So I, I kind of said to her, go, go look at the Istanbul convention and look at the, the human rights for children and and have a look at CEDAW, which is another part of this and cross reference where all of this impacts on men, women, boys and girls and how family and society does or does not have equality and she came back to me about eight weeks afterwards and said to me I cannot believe what I'm seeing because she's very well educated and she's very well versed but I think having that space in time to look at this over eight to twelve weeks and she's continued to do that because she now cross-references it with other pieces of legislation she she maps the footprint of what this does into all of the pieces of legislation that she's she's currently working with. And one of the things that people don't understand and don't realise is that when you have such a powerhouse as the Istanbul Convention, and how that's threaded into every single country, because what it does is, in each area in life where a family may knock the door, so if a man or a woman or a family knocks the door of health, or they knock the door of um, criminal courts, or they knock the door of family courts, or they... Or they go into education um, or even business. There's a risk management system and an equality system that is designed to identify where the need is. Because the Istanbul Convention is about protection, it's about looking after what the UN deem as being a vulnerable um, person or people in society. Uh, um, that that risk management impacts on how those services look at the people and knocking the door so when you go into a family court situation and you've got children involved you may have um i counted last night because we we're doing a um a, a document that kind of challenges the family court process and i counted how many services if there was a false allegation that was made which we know is made too often. And one of the things that we are very concerned about is that when those false allegations happen, there is there is very little evidence of, of the people being challenged in a court of law. So last night, I was checking through a document that's about to be published on, on the issues around family court. And I counted up 13 services that potentially would become involved with one single false alleg- ac- accusation. So if a, if a, a man... Has been accused of, say, rape or abuse in some way. As soon as that happens, children's services, violence initiates um, children's services. So, as soon as violence goes in the home and the police are called, they are required to to notify children's services. So they come in on board. Then you've got other services like housing, health, mental health. Um, You may have MAPA, MARIC, these are the protective services. I counted up that potentially one single um, disclosure on a false allegation can initiate 13 services then wrapping around the person that's made the accusation. And the process of assessment for that can take between 9 and 18 months. It's very rarely any less than that. It can take longer than that because it gets complicated. So you've got on average between 9 and 18 months of 13 services who are continuously involved with a family, which costs literally millions of pounds over the term of that, that investigation. And then it's often, too often, found to be a false allegation. There is very, It, it is very, very rare that a woman, we're talking about men and women here, um, that a woman is held to account for that false allegation in that 18 that 9 to 18 months time we've had men who have attempted suicide we've had men that have been successful um it's very it's very often young men between the ages of 16 and 25 um and they they will take those steps so so all that istanbul convention the risk management is also is is often directed only at the woman and the girl being the being the one that's at risk It doesn't look at the men. Now, the evidence that we've got is, I mean, for example, there's a frontline evidence of the inequalities. I occasionally, dads, fathers, men will find their way to me, and I'm qualified as a coach. And I will occasionally coach um, individuals who are desperate because there's no services. I can't let them go um, if they ask me for help. So recently, I've coached a a young dad who grew up in a 2.4 family, a very stable, established home, the, the the ideal UK home. Um educated, no issues with, with anything. Um very mainstream, loving, kind home. Ended up um with a woman who was it turned out to be abusive. And through their relationship they had five children and, and through the term he was he was arrested 36 times. Now In those times, he would spend anything from half a day to three days in custody. But every single time he called the police, he was the victim. One occasion, um, just to to put some context around this, on one occasion, um, his ex-partner hit him across the head with an iron, realised that she'd wounded him quite badly, run next door to the neighbour and asked the neighbour to punch her in the face and make sure she bleeds. On the arrest, on that particular occasion when the police turned up, he ended up in a police cell for three days. And it was only when the neighbour had, had refused because what ended up happening is she headbutted the the the, board, the base on the stairs, um, the handle, she headbutted that to make herself bleed. And she called the police and told her that she'd hit him in, in self-defence and he was arrested again. Now, the police, when the police come out, the the. The regulations at the moment and the guidance for them is, if they go to a property and there's a disturbance, even if they they walk away from there not knowing if the disturbance was real or if there's anything going on, if it's all quiet and nothing happened, so it could be a neighbour who's got a a contentious issue with with the family and they're just making false calls. But even if they step away not knowing who the perpetrator is, the police, when they go back to the police station, have to choose one of the people in those households to report as a potential perpetrator. Because of the Istanbul Convention and the the, the extended um, responsibility to make sure women and, and girls are safe, I've spoken to frontline police and they, they've said that they mostly put the man as the perpetrator because in their eyes, he's the one that is like, most likely to be the risk. Without any evaluation, without any evidence without even seeing that there's ever been an issue with that property. And all of this stuff is based on the risk management systems that are in place, and all of them come through the Istanbul Convention. We don't mind the Istanbul Convention. We think it's great that you've got something that focuses on women and girls. We, we must definitely do. What we don't think is right is there's not something to focus on men and boys, because it doesn't bring That same viewpoint into that scenario that allows the police to say, okay, our policies are saying that either one of these could be the perpetrator. I mean, in what world would the police go back into and make a report which is statistical evidence that's fed into the systems that count up how many people are in in the UK and experiencing domestic abuse? Okay, so these add to the statistics. and then they, they've got to go back to that without no evidence and they've got to choose which person's the perpetrator. When they go out to that address a second time or a third time, they will base what they may or may not meet based on the previous report. So if there was an assumption it was the man, they will focus on the men. Hence, my, my young gentleman who's um, been through hell. In fact, he has PTSD now um, and has got real major issues when he sees police cars drive past him. 36 arrests um, and the loss of five children and when he did eventually leave that home within two months his children were removed and put into children's services because the mother had turned her attention and violence onto the children so they'd been removed. One of the things that, um, that we are saying is that in that situation when a woman is harming I've had women come to me and beg me for help because their words to me are, "Sally, I batter my husband. I've been to the GP. There's no help for me. There's no specialist help." Um, and, and so, when we're not servicing half half of the society, those who are creating the harm and those who are, you know, are, are damaging future generations, they have nowhere to turn because these are not they, they're just not balanced people, you know. So we work in in some ways by by excluding equality for men and boys. You're also excluding the women who, are, who need support in a different context. So we, we believe our premise is that we're, we're working for everybody. You know, it's just that our main priority is making sure that men and boys have the same choices.
0: See, now, <clears throat> one first thing I want to say is thank you. <clears throat> thank you to you both for taking this mammoth task up and highlighting the issues. So I want to play devil's advocate here, OK? Mm-hmm. Because there's going to be potentially women listening to this saying, well, why are you doing this stuff for men? You know, we, as the women need more support, men are all perpetrators. So why are women focusing on helping men now from my experience and from the work that I have seen recently from some courageous um, inspirational women, when, I was doing my fight when I had my fight and I was going through the courts. I was going through Parliament. I was speaking to MPs. The narrative was always the same. It's always. Mark, if you want to make any change in society, unfortunately, you're going to have to get a woman to do it. Now, I was enraged when I heard that because I was actually talking to an MP. Uh, And that MP was the one who basically said, in Parliament, most of the, uh, most influential groups in there are female, female groups. Um, And they have the power to influence. And I'm like, well, how does that work then? Surely, in a society where we, we want equality, surely it shouldn't be. Down to one gender, surely we should be looking to integrate everyone and deal with issues on an equal playing field. Um, But that's my train of thought because I always think about equality. I always think when you say equality, what does equality mean? It means that everyone should have a balanced narrative. Everyone. So if there's support for domestic uh, abuse or violence for a woman, there should be domestic abuse. Um, support for a man. Um, If there's a havens for women, there should be havens for men. But what we need to do is integrate. What I'm scared about is that we were creating separate entities, separate organizations, separate structures to cater for men, cater for women, but there's still that segregation. And that that for me worries me. I I I want to see more of actually. Let's just bring in a universal group, okay? Men and women discuss the issues and put a balanced plan together to make sure everyone is catered for and not a, a, a separate. Um, entity that has to cater for a man or a woman or or whatever this is what I get worried about in society because we always have this separate mentality of, of separating everything and and that frustrates me because we we, we, we we need to move towards an integrated um society but but we will get there I know we will get there okay but but just me playing devil's advocate um with regards to sort of the child maintenance services, um, suicides, things like that. I've also noticed, it is true, most non-resident parents are men. When i done my um, freedom of information requests as well, um, we also had um, a serious imbalance with regards to uh, the child maintenance services. Um, And what I mean by that is (laughs) it was nearly 80% non-resident were were men and out of those men the, the men that i spoke to the majority of them didn't have access to their children so that was that was a, a, a double whammy so they were paying ridiculous amounts of money on um child maintenance and in the same breath they weren't allowed to see their children so yeah i just wanted to address that as well because it's, it's just shocking that these things are still happening in society. Um, uh, Mental health has been a major issue with men, especially young men growing up. But again, we are told as men not to to discuss these things. We're told not to talk about our feelings. We're, We're told that, you know, we shouldn't show weakness. We have to tackle life as a man. Being a real man, a man that shows no fear, a man that's the breadwinner, the man that has to take all the weight on his shoulders and 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 do everything to show that they're a man. And and that narrative has has also been quite dangerous to men as well, okay? Because men put themselves under a lot of pressure financially, emotionally, work-wise. Um, you know there is so much going on but we need the balance so let's 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 see what balance we can bring to this
2: um well mark i i completely understand your concerns and your questions as a man and a lot of people actually ask us uh you know that why as a woman would you like to support men and especially for a person like me who has just entered into human rights uh, law arena as a as a practitioner as a barrister I, I want to establish myself here as a human rights lawyer so I know this is going to be a constant question which I have to live with it as a woman why don't I support uh you know a woman and have more career options. So even if I look from practical sense, the answer that I always think that I can have to this is that I always feel that equal justice under law, it's, you know, perhaps the most inspiring ideals of our society. So it is one of the ends for which our entire legal system exists. Now I made a conscious choice to enter into law. While I was in India, I was practicing as a defense attorney where I represented so many men with false allegations and some, of course, you know, who were on the other side of the law, but they were my clients, so I defended them. Now I think it is the fundamental uh, uh, right that justice should be same for all men and women. This is idealistic. But as a lawyer, I can tell you that legal system is so powerful that it can actually bring large scale societal changes. Large scale, uh, you know, uh, uh, developments can take place where race, ethnicity, caste, gender, wealth, everything has classified us, disconnected us from our civilization. So it's like, you know, the justice should be same for all in substance and availability without regards to your gender. This is what I strongly believe in. And when it comes to telling that, why as a a woman, why as a uh, Person, I have chosen to practice in this area of law where I support men and boys and I vehemently support men and boys at every platform. The only answer is that I want to destroy this idea of equality, which does not actually stand for equality, where we only see one side of. Uh, gender of wealth of classification of races and everything else but we do not actually understand that equality in simplistic terms means equality of choice if you give everyone a choice to follow what they want to follow you forget gender for a moment i am a woman you are a man if for instance we forget this in this one moment it all boils down to your choices so it's something about equality which we all need to understand it's not about the power struggle which we have made equality to look like we have equalities act 2010 in place it talks about discrimination anti discrimination but how did we get there where we have to bring equalities act in 2010 there was anti discriminatory law in place which had spread itself over into like 116 legislations. I looked into not all of them, but many of them. Then I started reading Equalities Act in 2019. And then I started realizing why Equalities Act has come into existence. So the answer is it came into existence so that all citizens of this country can feel themselves protected under law. But at the same time, the question is, has Equalities Act 2010 empowered women in more ways than it has empowered men? Now, this is all about a societal uh, narrative, a social narrative, which we all build around us by not taking action, by not raising our voices, by not um, ensuring that we actually go And speak against all such people who try to make every legislation look like, you know, a pound of flesh which they want to take just for women from that legislation. So, if we try to understand things as they are gender as a societal term gender as a sociological term it gives everything to us in a it puts everything in perspective for us where we will know that you know as a man as a woman I have rights to uh, I have my right to all these services I have my right to all these choices so it doesn't matter whether I'm a man or a woman but Women's social empowerment, women's economic empowerment has actually riddled the world so much in last 50 years or in last, you know, 20 years at least, that any person who is growing up to see... Uh, a a barrister like Dr. Charlotte Proudman, she is very active on Twitter. She will just give a one-sided narrative where she will say even about Ukrainian and Russian war. She ended up sending tweets tweets that war affects women and children disproportionately and more adversely. Now, if you think it logically, just without any knowledge of law or society or anything else, you would just appreciate the fact that COVID has affected all of us. War has affected all of us. In Afghanistan, when people died, it wasn't that they are killing women or men. Yes, women can be raped, but men can be raped too. Yes, children can be exploited, but men and boys can also be exploited. It's not just girls and women who are exploited when a country is ravaged by war or disease. And death never discriminates. So should not law discriminate. Law is creation of man. Life and death is creation of God. But as a human rights lawyer, I always, always want to convey out uh, these things to all our audience who are listening to us through this podcast, that as human beings, we must try to understand that if we keep cutting every man around us, then as mothers, as daughters, as wives, as sisters, we are also cutting our lives because the women related to those men, for example, people who are fighting on borders of Russia and Ukraine from their respective sides, those men also have women in their lives. So you are actually, you know, sabotaging those women's rights as women, your own as a woman, you know, this is something not That makes sense to anyone if you think from a reasonable point of view. So I would just like to request, I would just like to implore each one of the persons listening to us that let us try to understand God has created a man and a woman. We must learn to live peacefully, coexist and use our knowledge of law, technology, sustainable development and every possible understanding of every subject that we know In this world to be existing in present times, let us use that knowledge to ensure that men and women have equal services, equal choices and equal rights. We can never survive in a world that is full of men alone or that is full of women alone. We need both the genders to have this idea of creation being carried on forever and ever till the time God wishes it to continue. So this is very idealistic and humanistic perspective, but then I'm a human rights lawyer. So I'll always talk like this. <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I want to just, um, Mark, you said something really interesting is why of women, be, where, you know, why are we in this situation when we're advocating for men and boys? And, and it's something that, you know, a lot, we've had men, I, I've had men that haven't trusted my intention. Um, and I get it and I understand it because women can harm and and rip men's hearts out of their bodies, you know, um, and damage them for the rest of their lives. We have that capability, no different to a man's capability to do that. And it's something that I, I get asked a lot. And I remember when I first started connecting with different groups and, and one of the women, Elizabeth Hobson, um, she... She's a very she's a very charismatic, very passionate young woman who was working to try and support men and boys for quite a while. And she said to me one day that she'd read a book, and in that book it had said that women have to stand up and rein in their crazy sisters. And she'd encapsulated in one sentence what was instinctive within me. You know, it was an instinctive driver within me that where... Where some where, I mean, if you were to put, you know, um, a battering ram at a door, the only way to stop a weakened door is to put a battering ram the other side. You have to have like for like in some contexts. And what we know about men is, and psychologists will tell you this, is that we are known with the archetypes of men that they that men will be in a position where they where women and children are, you know, are concerned. And, of course, set aside, there are some men that harm for the sake of harm. But um, for the most balanced, generalised men, they consider the women and the children around them to be the first thing that they will protect. And and one of the reasons why men don't push through and um, report crimes against them by women, and it takes a lot for them to actually do that, is because they they're always trying to protect. Um and and it's known. We know this, the stats tell us, everything tells us this. When you try you put men in the middle of a, a room, I've sat in many kind of legislative meetings, guidance meetings, mapping exercise stuff, and you will have a room full of people who are consulted with. And there may be 14 in a room. And out of those 14 people, there may be four, five, six men. And I've sat there an hour, two hours sometimes working with them, and men hardly ever speak. They hardly ever say anything. And normally when they do, it's when they're asked, when they're directly asked, what do you think about this? What does what do we need to do about this? And that very nature um, that they have is something that kind of silences them. When we when I did the I in the original paper that I presented to Welsh Government around equality for men and boys, this was quite some time ago now, 2015. The the answers I was getting from assembly members was, yes, Sally, we can see the evidence you're presenting. Yes, we know that there's an imbalance, but if we step up and put our head above the parapet with this, our careers will be annihilated. So I think when that person said to you it's got to be women that do it I think there might have been an understanding that women can call women out I can tell you I've been watching parliamentary TV I've been watching all of the data that's been released by leaders with female leaders over the last 5 years and I can tell you now that the push for women is not evidence based it it simply isn't we've pulled stats facts figures research we've pulled it apart gone down in the layers and I can tell you now, those women are not presenting accurate voices and they're leaders. And for women, there is a massive growing awareness and a massive growing army of people who are saying this is not good enough. It's not just me or Apu. We've got psychologists, lawyers. Um, there, there's people who are in politics, you know, there's civil servants. There's a massive growing awareness that we need to stop doing this now. It needs to be reined in. We need to look at actually where the service need is, and we need to be putting things in place that helps men and boys just as much as it helps women and girls. So they've got the established route. But unfortunately, the loudest voice within that that environment, the influencing voice at the moment, is women and girls. And women, particularly men, find it very uncomfortable to stand up and say, well, actually, what about the men and boys? So it's why women like Apu and I are here. And and for me personally, on a personal level, I can't wait for the day when I don't need to be here anymore. My long-term vision for Split the Difference was that once there was, we had this, you know, we can stand face-to-face with these women and challenge their, their ethics, their values, challenge what they want as outcomes, say to them, show us the facts, show us the evidence, let's have a look at that. Because whatever they show us, even if 75% of the people that are in need at the moment are women, there is still 25% that are men. And there's no way they can annihilate anything to allow men to have those services that they deserve the same, you know. So I think that's that's the thing about this, Mark. It's about um, women being able to face those who are, at the moment, very discriminatory in society and, and are actively working to block out I mean this suicide campaign that, that this these suicide voices they're trying to put together now for me as a woman is shameful. I mean it's absolutely shameful. We've got three out of four suicides in the UK currently are men and boys, some younger than ten, younger than ten years old. I know why that's happening. I can give you examples because in children's services perspective, when they, when so- social services go into a home, their predisposition, their risk management systems, are predisposition to identify women as a victim and to look first to see if they can see any issues around that. And where they have to play an assumption, they will assume the man is the is the perpetrator. So children are being left in environments where women are doing the harm. My story earlier was a prime example. It's not the only one. The highest rate of people that kill their children in the UK and internationally is mothers, it's women. You know, that's a, that's fact. It's not my voice, it's fact. When we go in set with those sets of principles that women are always a victim, then we're going to get the outcome of that is children that are not coping. Suicide is often the only option, unfortunately, that some young people take. They don't know any better. And when you've got you know, you've know, got politicians and people who are standing up now and are trying to find a gap where they can grasp hold of the smallest pieces of information and then push that narrative forward and completely ignore what is actually going on in society, that's why Apu and I are here. And that's why many people are here. Thankfully, men are standing up now. I mean, thankfully, they, they are actually understanding that they have to have a voice now, deliver it in a way that's based on truth and evidence, which is what we do but they have to have a
2: voice. Yeah, well, Sally, I mean, you you put everything in perspective so simply and easily that it makes perfect sense. I would just um, like to add that, you know, in all the years that I've started uh, practicing in the field of law, which was since 2015, because that was when I was called to bar in India, I have uh, felt that the beauty of our system anywhere in the world, whether it is India, whether it is UK, it is that, you know, it isolates everybody. That is how the the governing uh, structure has become now. For the last two decades or so, the system is isolating every person, whether a woman or a man, whether we realize it, or we don't. So I think, you know, the governments are working in a way that the smartest way to keep people passive and obedient is to, like you know, limit them strictly in their in their perspectives. And when you limit a a, a citizen in his perspective, which is like you know, what are your ac- acceptable opinions that you want to give out in the society? What do you want to expect from the government? As in, what are you know election manifestos or agendas that government is promising to you when they want to uh, you know uh, come to you for elections so it's something you know the the people are become passive and obedient to accept whatever the government is giving them so this brings us to a stage where there is no lively debate within that spectrum because we have been offered that range and in that spectrum we can only talk about one-sided narrative which from public has gone into government and now government is throwing back at public that okay you want women empowerment you want services for women you want women's safety especially after Sarah Everett's murder in you know February uh, 2021 last year Things have changed. The whole Vogue strategy, which is violence against women and girls strategy in England, it has absolutely dictated the law, which is the Domestic Violence uh, Act 2021 in favor of women. Where, like Mark, you always have pointed out in this one hour that men are labeled as perpetrators and women are presumed to be victims, even when they are not. So I think, you know, to sum it up all, I want to just say that I am very optimistic of making a strategy with help of professionals like Sally who is not only uh, my senior, but she also mentors me in so many ways, where now I know that how to build up strategies, and I'm still learning, and I shall continue to learn. So I think unless and until we have more and more people supporting podcasts like yours, supporting CIC like ours, and many more with similar you know, efforts and interests towards contributions in societies that they want to make. We cannot hope for a better future. So it's like, you know, we as Split and I as a person, I have taken upon this responsibility on myself that I will step out, I will talk, I will bring that narrative of hope that there is a hope and I guarantee that there will be hope if you assume that there is an, an in, inner an instinct in all of us for freedom. So if we believe in that hope that we all are strong enough to go out on streets against the governments or against all these rad feminists or people who just support one side of the spectrum, which is about agonizing And, uh, you know, alienating women from all relationships that they have with men. I think this instinct of freedom of speech, this instinct of hope, also guaranteed to us under all international human rights legislations or international Bill of Rights, that there are opportunities to change things. This is where I stand as a woman And I look at things from that perspective of equality where I feel there is hope, there is a possibility that I can contribute to make this world a better place legally because law governs each and every aspect of our lives. And as a legal professional, if I am aware, if I am awakened, if I have come in contact with professionals like all of you amazing people out there. Then I assume this is, you know, enough for me to be very optimistic, very hopeful that we can together bring changes and we can bring a balance to society. That is why Split the Difference has a has a tagline, which we have vowed <laughs> to keep up to that through our work. It says, redefining the balance. So we are trying to redefine the balance. And I personally thank you, Mark, for having both of us and having me uh, on this podcast. So I hope that our work shall actually be impactful and powerful uh, in coming few months. We, we shall bring some changes and contribute towards redefining the balance through Split the Difference, through Truth Hurts podcast, and so many others. So I even ask for support from all our audience. Go on our website, take the pledge, join us, and join us to actually redefine the balance and make this world a beautiful place where all men and women can coexist peacefully without fighting, without struggling. So that's all I hope.
0: I'm just going to jump in there. Um, The passion that you two have is undeniable okay most people probably won't really understand why you do what you do even though it's clear to see but because you don't fit the narrative you don't fit the narrative so they, they're gonna they're gonna find obviously issues with and i'm sure that you've faced some issues with what you've been doing uh, especially promoting men um throughout your careers so for me Do we have a a, a boy crisis? Do we have a men and boy crisis? Especially when it comes to things like education, mental health, family. So what's the solutions? What is the solution that we can bring everyone? Not just us, but something that we can influence in society to help bring the changes that we need to support everyone, including men and boys. What can we do? What what solutions? Because people are going to be sitting there going, right, I get what you're all doing and we appreciate it, but what, what can we do now to rectify this problem?
1: Okay, so there are a number of areas, not just in the UK, but actually worldwide, where the last... You know, since the UN Women has, has come into place where they're in the in the zone of being able to evaluate not just countrywide decisions but also, you know, down to the local areas. That's that's now been in place for you know over ten years. And and that that was done by a series of mapping exercises and understanding the needs of women. It was done through legislation, it was done through guidance, it was done through strategies that came out of that to make sure that the, the legal side of each country's life was taken care of. So, for example, with education, it goes from the education legislation and the governance for that down into a guidance, down into policy and how to look at and evidence the need. Now, because of, of the women's movement and and the un women the focus for education is around making sure that women have the same opportunities in different areas of employment and because of that the the assessment of need is very much into where are girls now what do we need to give them so that they can enter into organizations um and be able to to thrive we know what we know is that um, in schools, 30% of the boys, there's a 30% more likely that boys will fail in schools than girls. We know that if boys get through to the stages of education into further education, um, the dropouts for boys is 20% higher than it is for, for girls in further education. We know that worldwide, regardless of the charities and the voices that are saying we've got to get women, women and girls into education, What we know is the current stats, which I looked at about eight weeks ago, are saying that there are more boys not in education than there are girls. And in some of the figures, they're strikingly high. We know that the UN is refusing to publish figures on education that show how many people are in further education across the world. They are now amalgamating the counts. And they only give it in one figure. Now, the reason I know that is because I've counted them. But I also know that grant provision and the direction of support, financial support for women to go into education is just for women. You will. It is very, very difficult for boys or men to get grant support to go into further education. So we know that there's a bias there. The solution is that when a, a community or society is assessed... the assessments that are being put forward need to be listened to so for example i actually have a colleague who is one of the top managers in estim which is a uk um it's a it's a uk department that evaluates how a school is functioning whether it needs special attention or whether it's meeting its targets and when she found out what i was doing she said to me oh my god sally i'm going to retire in a few years time and when i do I'm going to come and work with you because she said what we are doing in every school and college is we are telling these schools that they're not paying enough attention to the needs of boys. And we're telling um, the, the government that they need to pay more attention to the needs of boys. And she said, I, I'm done with it. I've, ha- I've had enough with it. So one of the, uh, just to re- put this into context, I spoke to because we I connect with people frontline to make sure what I'm doing is the right thing. And I spoke to a teenage boy and he said to me two weeks ago that he was preparing for his exams and he went to the school and the school had assessed his needs as, and, he, and had told him to expect a B. And he wants to study law and politics and he said, no, I need an A. And the teacher said, look, instead of trying to achieve something that you're not going to achieve, just achieve your B. Now, he actually is dating a young girl. Um, and she's in a different class to him, but the same age. And at the, on the same week, she was told that she could, at the moment, her current marks were a B. But she, they put on additional classes for her to go into so she could learn how to revise so that she could increase her mark to an A. So he went back into school the following day and he said to the school, my girlfriend's going into these special classes to achieve a B, an A. I want to know how to do that as well. And they told him, just stick with your B, you'll achieve your B, it will be fine. So when he went home that night, he was really upset and he spoke to his mum and he said, mum, what am I going to do? And she said, look, you you have been working really well, just push and push and push and you do your A, you're you ahead for your A. His girlfriend came the day after. She sat down for two days and taught him what the teachers had taught her in school to be able to achieve an A. Now this boy has spent the last year pushing and pushing and pushing himself to get that A because he knows what he wants to study and he knows what he wants to do but his school has refused to back him. That's where education is sitting and that's what this Ested manager is telling me. So what we need is we need a fair and equal system for education and the only way that you can do that is that the policies, the overarching policies disallow the total focus on girls and, and women. I mean two years ago there was a, an, a report on the TV and a university in England had gone into morning TV and they'd said for the last five years we have been trying to get more women into engineering and IT classrooms and degrees and we have pushed and pushed and pushed and we have gone and taken this to international students and we've tried to increase the attendance within these IT cl- specialist classes and we're failing and the, the presenter the the host of the news the morning news show she said well can you tell us what this is and this this went over a three-day period of reporting and she said what's the problem and they said we don't know we've spent hundreds of thousands of pounds advertising we've gone into every school we've gone to international platforms Dubai international um because education has got a place in in the market internationally and she said, We still are not getting the same amount of women. We still can't get the 50-50 classrooms. And the final question from the host was, Okay, so what can we do about it? And and she this woman sat back in the chair and she said, Well, we're clearly not doing enough. And I thought, I sat back and I thought, You've tried for five years, you've I know the education system. I've been to Dubai on education shows, I've been to conferences, and I know how much energy they put in that. And I thought, after five years, I know you will have spent hundreds of thousands of pounds trying to get people in in those classrooms to reach your 50-50 target, because that's their target. And I know how much money you have sent. And the only conclusion you can make is that you've not done enough. And I sat back and I thought, where is psychology? Because what we know is, in, in employment, in education, the top managers, the most... The employment of top managers in the NHS system now there's more women. There's more women nurses. There's more. They will try and argue that there's more doctors than male. This is not true. More managers than male. This is not true. The stats are there for everybody to see. We know that psychologically we will naturally gravitate to to certain areas of employment and learning because we are different men and women are different yes we should have the opportunity to do whatever we want there may be somebody who wants to be an it engineer or somebody who wants to be a woman who wants to be a gas engineer or builder go for it do it let the opportunity be yours but to spend hundreds of thousands of pounds advertising over a five-year period to get 50 50 women in a a classroom when clearly there's not the need there there's no assessed need there, you know? And and what does it matter? The classroom is set up for learning. What does it matter if women are attracted or men are attracted? As long as you've set an agenda where you've targeted and made these young women and young men available to, to what they can do in their life, I mean, I, my ex-partner, my ex-husband was a nurse and he started off as an engineer and he studied engineering, worked in that realm for a long time. And then when he reached his 30s, he said, I've always wanted to be a nurse. And I said to him, well, why aren't you a nurse? And he said, because the only the only nurses that the only people that were nurses when I was young, um, they had a, a specific sexual preference and I wasn't I wasn't confident enough. That's the type of education you need to be given. You can do anything, be anything, be anybody, regardless of your gender, your sexual orientation. The classroom is open to all, you know. And I think the only way that you can put this, these things right is to assess the need, do it competently. When a young man goes to you and says, I want to reach an A, you don't tell him he can't go in the classroom to be able to reach the A, you know. I mean, that's a Welsh education classroom. This is this is shameful. This is absolutely shameful. And I think we need to get it right. I mean, we just need to step forward and say, right, enough, enough. We have to get it right. You know, sorry, I get really passionate about the fact that, you know, there's not enough presence in these professional people's lives that they're not willing to step up and say, well, actually, I'm going to support people equally. I, I 100%
0: agree with you, Sally. Seriously, what you described there is, is the fundamental... The say, I had the same issue, the exact mm-hmm. same issue in school. The problem is I found in school that the teachers would naturally gravitate towards the girls mm-hmm. um, and give them full support, mm-hmm. no matter what their needs were. Even though the, the boys were struggling in, in the back of the classroom... They, we would always be left and and be like, well, you know, you lot will will work towards what you can get, you know, kind of thing. Whereas the girls would be like, right, do you need extra classes? Do you need one to one support? And and we'll be sitting there going, but why aren't we being offered that? I know. What 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 what, what, what difference does it make? Like if if we're struggling, why can't we get the one to one support? And and this is the problem that we've had in the educational system and and in society in general. Women are always portrayed as the victim. And the men are always portrayed. And even boys are portrayed as perpetrators. And this is why it's so important that we find solutions for these problems and and try and balance it out, just like what the Difference does. I um,
2: I think, you know, like we say that there is a men and boy crisis. So I think from the word crisis, if we move to positive words, like boys and men can So it's like to me, crisis of purpose. You know that men uh, or boys. Let's talk just about boys. Like uh, Sally gave an example about uh, the grading system in schools, which is actually discriminating against boys. So I think it is more about you know um, when men become delinquent or boys become delinquent, which is called juvenile delinquency legally. So they become uh, you know uh, they have to face the police system they have to face the judicial system but if girls engage in drinking and uh, drugs and you know drop out of school or something then they still garner support and sympathy and that is why we see so much of agenda around uh, you know uh, enrollment ratios should increase for girls uh, who who have, have to be part of the classrooms like more than boys and that's why that, that's the preference given to girls And I think um, if, you know, we have boys uh, raised up in a manner where we don't have them feeling alienated or without any purpose or withdrawn or, you know, uh, growing without fathers, which is the case, as I'm seeing when I'm dealing with the CMS case. So a lot of boys are growing without fathers there is less less involvement of fathers in their lives so they are going to be raised by toxic mothers hence becoming toxic or insecure men and then the cycle will continue it is going to be a vicious cycle so i think all the parents all the teachers and all the policy makers each one of us will have to play a role to help our sons or help our boys to become Uh, happier, to become mentally stable, to become good, uh, you know, boys, grow into good adults as men, and then become good fathers and leaders, you know, that that can get respect from us that can actually uh, add to society. And this all starts from, I think, first parenting, second from the schools. So it's a very good step forward, where we are educating schools to, be careful and conscious of the needs of boys too and not just focus on girls. And uh, when it comes to policymakers, that is where I always keep saying that that is where we need the intervention of lawyers, policymakers, legal uh, professionals to come up with policies which make men and boys also come on the same platform as women and girls. I might sound very repetitive, but you know, the truth is, the point is that from schools and from the social policies, if we if we start from there and we put all these discriminatory uh, practices to rest, through the policies and legislative changes, I think, you know, all these crises, the crisis of fathering, crises in mental health, education, and, you know, the social structure, we can answer all these questions. We can answer all these lacunae not only in law, but also in the social uh, sphere, which is kind of, you know, not good. No, so, no, I
0: agree. I agree completely with that. I said there's, a lot of it is generational trauma, a lot of it is ignorance, um, and and it's right, we do need to start from uh, an early stage.
2: And you uh, know, possibly. legally, I would also like to make it very, very clear that when we look at somebody who has false allegations, or let's say who has allegations on him that he is a perpetrator of domestic violence and abuse, law does not function in a way where we say that the person has been blamed with something So he has become culprit for the rest of his life. The allegations do not make you convict. It is just on the basis of evidence that law decides that, you know, the person will be punished or the person will be, uh, you know, uh, the person will be left uh, from punishment. So accusations is not a proof or conviction does not depend on, you know, accusations conviction always and always in law depends on the basis of evidence, the evidence that has been proved and produced on record, and it depends on due process of law. So we can never ever label a class of individuals or a gender as preparators. It is wrong in law, it is wrong under any law, whether it is human rights law, whether it is international law, whether it is domestic law, which is you know, prevailing in this country in this point in time. So I would just make it very, very clear that when it comes to law, when it comes to policy, when it comes to teachers and parents, we all must take a responsibility where we make our boys, you know, feel secure, safe and loved and cared enough where they don't feel the sense of purpose or that void, in their lives where they grow out to be insecure individuals and then have all these problems so if we start system if we start system correction from point a we will not spend for next 5 years doing advertisements or paying much for social services where we have to look after uh, uh, you know our citizens with their mental health their health problems their their social needs and things like that so i think uh, it will make perfect sense if there is overhaul in the policy, and
1: that's what we need at the moment. Mark, we've taken your time up, but can I just say, you know, accountability has to be needed. Um, it, it has to be put in place. These There's statements made in Parliament, there's statements made publicly in speeches, there's, there's things that are said in, in Twitter, in social media by influences in society and those who are situated within governance there's no accountability for those comments some of the some of the the terms of reference some of the the voices that are pushed forward they're not backed by evidence there needs to be accountability the only reason our and i and women like us are here is to be able to demand that accountability i mean anybody listening to this podcast whether you're a man or a woman if you're a woman you need to be thinking about your brothers, your sons, your grandfathers, your husbands, and you need to be thinking about your future generation because what you're doing if you're not backing equality is you're actually looking in the face of the people that have either born you, love you, or work with you, and you're telling them you're not getting what I'm getting. And and I don't know how you can look into the face of people and do that. So there's accountability there. I mean, our and I and women like us, we, we all of us say, put us in a room of 5,000 women who believe that they are right when they lock out men from services or they pin on them this thing around, you, you're always going to be the problem and I'm never going to be or women are never going to be the problem. Put us in a room with those 5,000 people and every stick of evidence they've got. And we know that we can show you evidence that says you need to listen to men as well. And I think we need social accountability we need professional accountability. We need men to say, actually, what you are saying is not true. This is what happens when you're a man. This is who I am. And drop your mic, step away. But we have to have that voice. And everybody is responsible for that voice, whether you're a teacher and you've got a young man who's asking you to help him reach an A. No matter what your class is and now your numbers are, accountability and going that extra mile is your responsibility or you're in the wrong job. If you're, a, if you're in governance and you're governing the society you live within, whether you're a local councillor, whether you're a, a civil servant in that local store, or whether you're globally, you're an influencer, you are meant to serve all, which means 100% of your community. If you were not standing up and asking for the same thing for men that you were asked for, asking for women, you need to step down and back off. You were not in the right job. You are discriminatory and you are illegal and you need to step away. And if anybody is behaving like that in your team, you need to hold them account. You know what is right. We know what is right. It's inbred in us to be fair. That's what's inbred in us. And those who are not being like that need to step aside and they need to be pushed out the door because ethically, value-based professionally, there's code of conduct, They shouldn't be in that role. And it needs to have accountability. And I know it's very passionate, but, you know, when we've got so many people now that are joining that voice and it's heartwarming for the first four years, we didn't have that. The last 18 months to two years, we've seen a massive difference. Massive. We're running an Irish campaign now where we're asking for a strategy for boys and men and and doors are opening. I mean, bless her to, to everything. We've got the Children's Commissioner have written to us and said that she backs the strategy for boys and men. How amazing is that? Four years ago, three years ago, I would have had to knock on that door 20 times and she still wouldn't have replied to me. I don't mean her per se. I mean, generally, people in that in that environment. It was very difficult to get in through the door with a men and boys agenda. But we're being allowed in now. And I see that as a, m- a massive change. And I'm really hopeful about Northern Ireland. And that's going out across the whole of the UK. But I'm really hopeful because of the narrative within that Northern Ireland are great. It's just unfortunate that we've got extreme feminists who are trying to bring in, again, solely a female agenda um, in an environment where we know that one in three of the victims of domestic abuse are men you know, um, so I, I think there's accountability, accountability with podcasters to to hold a fair and equitable voice, anybody that's got that voice and knows it's wrong needs to speak out and that's it, it's clean and simple. I, I,
0: I, I cannot disagree I cannot disagree and as I said, I, I, I'm so thankful for both of you for your passion, it's so important to do something that you're passionate about, there's so many people out there that are just doing mediocre stuff who are not passionate about it and don't really know what direction to take what they're doing. You two have a clear direction, clear passion for what you you're doing. And we thank you and we appreciate you. So unfortunately that's all we have time for, for this episode. I would like to thank my special guests, Sally and Apu, uh, for participating in this show and thank you everyone for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.
1: I'm Trisha Tharby, I'm from the UK, and I listen to Truth Hurts Podcast.
0: Hi, I'm Steve from England, and I'm listening to the Truth Hurts Podcast. I'm Christina from the UK, and I'm listening to the Truth Hurts
1: Podcast.
0: Hi, my name is Mark Haggerty, and I'm from Wales in the UK, and I am listening to the Truth hurts podcast i'm jay dean from the netherlands and i'm listening to truth hurts podcast hey what's good people it's missy here guess what i'm listening to truth hurts podcast